Hey, I'm Jeff Reed. I'm Craig Killian. And this is the From First to Last podcast. From First to Last Podcast. It's a podcast where my friend Craig and I, we get together each week. We work our way through a director's theatrical filmography from their first film all the way through to their last. Craig, we're here in season six. Season six. It's Lucky season six. I know. First movie of season I six. I know. Damn right. I have been. It feels like it's been so long since we've actually sat down and recorded. I know. But hey, we're at the first movie. We are, and it's very exciting. I'm actually really excited because I have... I don't want to like get too deep into it just right now at the get-go, but I've got a lot of hope for this first film. Oh, man, I'm, I'm excited that it just doesn't have Ron Howard attached to it. <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell you? No, I, no, no I, offense to Ron, I you're log, awesome. As we know, I log every movie that I watch Every, yeah. All throughout the year. So I got my year in review from letterbox.com, which oh, cool. is one of the app that I use. And uh, they let me know that I'd recorded 170. I watched 177 films last Damn. year. Damn. Yep. Uh, the most watched director was Ron Howard. Oh, wow. That's surprising. The most watched actor. <laughs> was Ron Howard? <laughs> no. <laughs> it was definitely another Howard. Bryce, <laughs> his his brother. Oh, he's brother the Clint. Shit, I saw Clint the other day in a movie. I was like, "That's Clint." <laughs> uh, so funny. So yeah, it was a it was a. I had a little chuckle at that. And actually, the year before, my most watched director was Sam Raimi, and the most watched actor was Ted Raimi. Ah, so, cool. <laughs> so the podcast is slanting things, but. Um, as we mentioned before, we are talking Catherine Bigelow this season. Yes, we are. I'm really excited for what could be. Yeah. I feel like I've got a little knowledge of Catherine Bigelow, but not enough to say, is this going to be a great director? Uh, yeah, same. I think I've got a, no- a lot of knowledge of her films, um, but I've never seen it through Catherine Bigelow perspective. Yeah, like that lens. Yeah, that yeah, Catherine Bigelow. totally get it. Like, I haven't seen it through the evolution of Catherine yeah. Bigelow. You know what I mean? Like, um, I've seen pretty much every one of her films except for Detroit. Wow. Um, but well, and, and well, previously the Loveless as well. Yeah. But man, I'm I'm literally, I haven't seen a thing to Point Break, and then I probably didn't see a thing to Hurt Locker. Oh really? So there's a lot of unknown quantity in there for. Me. I didn't realize I saw him. Oh really? And, oh, that's what. But that's hey, that's the point of this podcast. You know, yep. you look at it, and you go, oh shit, she directed that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, pretty damn good. I love it. I love it. So last week, Craig, we had our intro episode. Yep. Go back and listen to it, people. That's You'll get great. a good understanding That's of great. what we're expecting. We're at our peak. We're at <laughs> peak, <laughs> peak from first to last. It's one of our best episodes ever. I love it. I love it. So this week, Craig, we are talking The Loveless. It's Catherine Bigelow's yep. first film. Yeah. It's also an interesting one because it's the first film we've had that is directed by two directors. Yeah. At the same time. With a crazy name. But hey, I'm used to crazy names now. We're Monty Montgomery. After Bubbleu Boo Boo, Bubbleu Gantz. Bubbleu Gantz. Now we've got Monty Montgomery. Yes, yes. It's interesting because it's the only uh, film he did direct. Mm. And his parents hate him. 
Do they? They must, man. Oh, you calling him Monty, Monty Montgomery. Montgomery. <laughs> Jesus, man. <laughs> I thought you had a little inside scoop for me, Craig. Yeah, I, I was like, oh, you know about the Montgomery family oh, look, drama? I think anyone who's um, been a producer with David Lynch yep. has probably parental issues. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did find his feet more as a as a producer. And he's released some pretty big films yeah, as a yeah. producer. So, uh, well done to him. So, should we just cut to straight to the chase, Craig? Cut to that chase. And let's get into The Loveless. Let's get into it. All right. So we talked about last week that Catherine Bigelow has sort of started out as an art major. Yep. Focusing on her painting. Yep. And during that, she really wanted to um, dabble more in the medium and expand on what she was doing. So she looked to incorporate elements of film and video within her artworks. Yeah. This led to her really enjoying uh, the, the medium and basically moving her focus into being a student of a film program at Columbia University. Cool. So she's studying film and during this time she began experimenting more and she directs a short film called The Setup. Now that was released in 1978. It's a 14-minute film that basically focuses on the psychology of violence and through observations and commentary. Yeah. Uh, she shot it in a night in an alleyway. I've tried really hard to get a hold of it by legal means. Virtually impossible for Jeffrey. Dang. So, um, and I was pretty pretty tough. I signed up for a lot of streaming services, art house streaming services. Those weird ones that go, "Hey, we have heaps." Yep. And they're just those crappy ones that used to be like X Blockbuster yes. bottom shelf <laughs> crap. Oh yes, cost me all of three dollars, but I've got about four There's of them. Reason now. it's cheap. But uh, <laughs> so the the short film. Most of the things that I could find out about it is people are sort of calling it a pre-Fight Club Fight Club. Ah. So it's pretty high praise. Yeah, that is pretty good. Made me very intrigued to find out more about the, the short film. Yeah, a fight community before it became actually <laughs> <laughs> officially known as a club. <laughs> they gave them patches. Fight, fight get together. <laughs> a fight catch up. Uh, fight bake. <laughs> gang. Yeah, fuck gang. <laughs> so during her time at Columbia, Bigelow uh, meets a fellow student named Monty Montgomery. Ooh. Oh, sorry, he wasn't. I just considered him to be this really old dude who mentored No, no, her. he was uh, the same age and they were just young he students in film like school. He was 50 years old. No, and <laughs> if you see photos of him, he almost looks like he's got bleach blonde hair, but he's just this, like he really looks like he's a model. Albino. Oh. He, looked, he looks like a Swedish model. It's like an 80s villain. <laughs> yeah, probably if they put him in like a safari suit, he'd look ah, really, yeah. really good. But he looks like one of those guys that would just, he's just cool. People ah, would be drawn cool, to cool. him. Is he rockabilly cool? Uh, like, more, you know, yeah, sort of. He just has that sort of, you know, like button-up shirt, chinos, open sort of shirt look that's just really cool, cool and suave. So they actually decide to work together and begin writing a script about biker and rockabilly culture in the 1950s. Yeah. Uh, initially, it was entitled US 17. Ah. So that's, they begin working on that. And Bigelow is actually really funny. She talks about the entire process of making The Loveless. Yeah. And just says it was the entire time it was the blind leading the blind. Like they had no idea what they were doing. They were fumbling their way through it. But thinking about that, I'm pretty impressed with the quality of film that ends up coming out of it. Oh, yeah. End. Oh, yeah. Even just the transfer of the film, which we'll, oh, talk, about. we'll talk about that soon. But yeah. that Blu-ray transfer was gorgeous. Hot damn. So the, the film's called US 17 and they finished the script sort of about 1979, 78, 79. 
they finished the script. So they set out um, towards the end of 1979 to begin, begin casting. Now, there are some really cool stories about the casting, which um, <laughs> the first one I love is the fact that in 1979, a unknown actor was in a play in New York and Catherine Bigelow was in the audience with sure. Monty Montgomery and they see this guy and they're like, who is this guy? We've got to get him in our film. He blows my mind. Yeah, 100%. So the the actor, they waited around after the show and met him and just said, hey, we're making this movie. Would you like to be in it? And the guy said, sure, send me a script. And that actor was an unknown actor at the time named Willem Dafoe. And I'm sure they called him William. I'm sure that, I reckon Billy. Billy. Billy Daff. So, sorry, William. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, it's Willem. <laughs> uh, so it's funny um, on the Blu-ray which Arrow Films have released an amazing Blu-ray release for this I actually have to say for all our first films this is the most It's I paid the most for the film yeah and it was worth every cent it's so comprehensive it's got production stills interviews with there's cast. even a trailer for this blu-ray on yeah. youtube yeah we might pop it up actually because yeah. it's a, it's a, it's worth if you can track it down it's worth getting there's a commentary for montgomery for the entire film which i would love to have had time to sit down and just get every bit of information uh there was actually a really cool one i think they showed in the trailer actually when he's talking about his commentary, which is that opening scene with Willem Dafoe on the motorbike yeah. and it doesn't start at first yeah. <laughs> and then he fires it up and uh, he's like, oh, this is actually Willem Dafoe to just struggling to start the bike and we just thought, let's just let him keep going. <laughs> you and I talked about this, we are like, yeah. oh, he stuffed it. Yeah, yeah. And it was really funny. In the interviews, which I'm sort of digressing, but it was I was going there anyway, uh, Willem Dafoe talks about he lied about the fact that he could ride a motorbike yeah. when he got the job. So he went to the library after getting the role and borrowed a book about how to ride a motorbike from the <laughs> library just to get his head around it and then found himself in Georgia testing out people's antique Harley Davidsons and he tells this awesome story about the fact that he'd never ridden a motorbike before. He jumps on, he knew how to start it because he'd um, read the book over and over again, kicks it off and then rides it and he's like, he just lost control in this person's backyard on this 1950s <laughs> Harley Davidson. And he just turned around and he said, oh, sorry, a bit rusty. It's been a while <laughs> since I've ridden. <laughs> and they're like, oh. He's like, by the time we got there, got on set, I knew how to ride. Um, but at the time, Willem Dafoe actually had no agent. He'd been in a couple tiny roles in independent films and he'd actually been an uncredited extra on Heaven's Gate. Oh, really? And that was his only experience within the film industry. So he has no agent at this time. And actually, once he was given the script and agreed to be in the film, he had to contact friends who were professional actors to ask how much he should tell them he wanted to be paid. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they're like all this information that like he's just offering freely within it and just smiling and recounting the journey of the lover so really if you can get a hold of this blu-ray it is so darn good it's funny you say that i was watching the gq um he breaks down his iconic oh cool um, you love those don't I you i love those man because he goes through everything he goes through the whole thing spider-man antichrist um yes. you know, the life aquatic um and and everyone said the exact same thing that you just said 
he says it with such like enthusiasm, yeah. like humility. Yeah. Just, yeah, it's just a man who's so happy just to be doing his job that he yeah. just loves doing it. Loves doing it. As an actor, Kathy Lee really struggles with him. So I think it's because he plays harsh characters a lot of the time. Mm. Like his features are harsh. Like she kept saying in the interview, she's like, he's got a beard, but how about his cheekbones? Because they're like really prominent. And um, I want to talk a bit later as well. I've got a note to talk about it. It's just how I kept looking at a young Defoe and thinking about Dane DeHaan. Ah, yes, yes. And... The, the Well, we may as well go there now. Is whoever was doing the casting of that amazing Spider-Man sequel where yeah. he played the Green Goblin or the Hobgoblin, whichever one he played, it's like I totally get that person needs far more props than they got because oh, he, he was so Willem Dafoe in that. I think he is the modern, yeah, modern-day Willem Dafoe. Yeah, definitely. He has, so that, he has that odd look to him. Yeah. Um, almost, well... There's two actors that have that really odd look to him, um, him Adam and Adam Driver. Yeah. But they have this talent that just basically just blows you off the screen. Yeah. Spirit. Yeah, and you can't yeah. help but keep watching him, can yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. I can't wait. Uh, there's, a, there's a movie I'm trying to find um, from Dane DeHaan is where he plays the kid. It's written by... He plays Billy the Kid. It's oh, called wow. The Kid. It's re- um, directed by Vince D'Onofrio. Oh, really? Yeah, I know. Exactly. I just oh. saw a clip for it, but... Um, it's somewhere. If someone knows it, just shoot it to me. Yeah, so good. Um, on the, the Blu-ray, they talked to the other members of the cast, so the yeah. other bikers, and oh. two of them were actually just legitimate rockabilly bikers who were known around New York. One had a um, a barber that if you wanted to go get a, a flat top or a pompadour, he was the guy you had to go to. Oh. And so the look he has in the film, he's sort of the taller uh, one with the big pompadour. Yeah. Um, his look was actually, that was how he dressed every single day. So wow. that was his genuine look. Um, and so it's really cool. So those guys talk about, you know, um, how they wanted to be in the film because it was just basically going to highlight the things that they loved the most about that culture. Robert Jordan? Did well, Robert that? Gordon actually Gordon, was uh, a late addition to the film. Oh, okay. And Robert Gordon actually was strangely the element that added gravity to the film. So once he came on board, everyone's like, oh, they've got Robert Gordon. So he was uh, that rockabilly culture. He was really, he was on the same record label as Elvis. Yeah. Um, and was really seen as uh, the who's who of rockabilly. And so. He still goes around today. Yeah, he still tours. Yeah. Still making music. Cuts, still, still, still got it. Obviously, yeah. you see he just done a little bit of it. But everyone says he was the legitimate thing. He yep. was just legit rockabilly. He goes, a lot of people you took can fake it and put on that pompadour shit and yep. he just lived it. Yeah, totally. And mm. so he was brought on in the film actually to work with, oh, I wish I'd written his name, uh, the composer to create the music for the film. Yeah. And so Robert Gordon came on board and they're like, man, his look is amazing. We need to have him in the film. And so they said to him, look, uh, while you're providing music, which he was going to write some original music for the film, which he did, um, they, they said, would you be in the film? And he goes, yeah, I'll do it, but you got to give me the Harley Davidson that I'm riding. <laughs> and so they agreed to it. Awesome. They gave him the, the Harley Davidson. Um, really fun fact as well about the, the music was the, the composer talks about they'd pretty much put all this really popular rockabilly music within the film, and then when it came time to release the film, they couldn't afford any of the rights for any of the songs. Oh. Everyone demanded these huge things, so they actually had to go through Robert Gordon and the composer and rewrite 
all the music for the film, aside from a couple songs that were in there, um, which is pretty pretty horrible. So, damn, so Coca Cola didn't pay for all of that. <laughs> there was a lot of Coca Cola. <laughs> there was a lot of Coca Cola in that movie. <laughs> Lots of chats by the uh, the vending machine, wasn't there? And it won't be the last time you see Coca Cola. Oh really? <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Um, so they actually begin shooting in September 1980. With the cast and um, the girl who's like the teenage lover that Willem Dafoe, yes, hooks up with, um, she talks about the fact. One, it was really funny. She talks on the on the Blu-ray about the fact that she was in her twenties at the time and she lied and said she was sixteen <laughs> to be in the film. Yeah. So they wanted a a really young person, but she said that she got the role and within two weeks they were shooting. So the cast was pretty Damn. much set and shooting mm. two to three weeks later. So he begins shooting in September 1980 in Georgia and actually they shot in the heat of summer in Georgia. So they're in all that leather gear for 25 days Ugh. shooting. So most of the actors talk about it and call it a grueling shoot because they were so hot. Yeah, and you can imagine none of that would have been air conditioned. Oh, my God. So, post Dirty diner smell. Yeah, just, you could just imagine yeah, you it. Just imagine. Um, so, post production begins in December 1980, and they were expected to have sort of a, a print by February 1981 to start prepping and cutting and editing and all that sort of stuff. So, producer Larry uh, Kardish was shown a rough cut in January 1981, and during that, decided maybe US 17 wasn't the best name for the film. Let's look at something else that's sort of going to be a bit more accessible to audiences. So they changed it to The Breakdown was the name, which the film is about a motorbike breaking down and what takes place around it. So I guess it has that indie film yeah. edge to that name, doesn't it? They remade it with Kurt Russell. Yeah. <laughs> was it Kurt Russell? Was <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> so good. So good. So the film gets edited. They work on it a bit more. And under this new name of uh, Breakdown, uh, they have their world premiere at Festival de Film Lusano in Switzerland. Oh, so that's where the world premiere was on August 18, 1981. I'd love just the premiere of anything in Switzerland. Just I know. To Switzerland. <laughs> you know, first film. Yeah, could just pretty be, crazy. Take it just to be that, that cinematographer's um, cinema, the one place in Budapest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that one place. Um, so then, so that's in August 1981. The film then goes undergoes another name change. And this is really interesting because uh, the film itself has its world premiere in 1981, but it's not actually released in box offices till 1984. No, sounds like New Mutants. Yeah, so it's like a three-year journey to get to a cinematic release. Yeah. Um, So the film undergoes another name change, and they change it to The Loveless, and it has its US premiere in March 1982. So with that, they've got a bit of hype, there's some reviews going on, and the film then gets a release two years later in January 20, 1984. So they booked out a cinema in New York and it had a limited run in that cinema in New York. Awesome. Attending the premiere were some of Bigelow's friends and she was quite big in the art scene before becoming a filmmaker. So she's got Ruben Mapplethorpe uh, attending with her. And, I don't know who that uh, is. Robert Mapplethorpe and Andy that Warhol. Help it. I know Andy Warhol. So these are two of her friends oh. that are sort of big wigs in the... Andy's the, probably going, this is the only 15 <laughs> So it's really interesting with the film as well is they don't really offer much information about the budget. 
Oh. Or uh, how much it took at the box office. Drug money. IMDb sort of talks about it based on a Swiss release, a uh, Swedish release actually, um, and it's a couple thousand dollars. Okay. So that's pretty much the journey to screen for The Loveless. Hmm, that's not that bad. No. That's not no. Did they talk about why they called it The Loveless? No, there's not really much. I actually had it as a note to talk about with you when we discussed the film itself, why it was called The Loveless. Yeah. Oh, look, it's an interesting name change. It is a very interesting name change. Like, obviously, watching a movie, you can see, obviously, these are people who just are lacking love. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there, is this, there, there isn't really a loving character throughout the whole film. No. But that's something we can dive into later. Yeah, let's, let's, let's put a pin in it. Hey, yeah. Now, we had a little chat in the off-season. We thought we're going to add, add a new little bit into the each episode. Mm-hmm. Craig's got his look of, oh, I can't remember can't what remember. that is. But that's all right, because I'll take you there. Oh, cool. We thought we'd just have a little rundown on, before we hit what was released in 1984, yeah. let's just take a look at what 1984 was for a cinematic year. Yeah. We wanted to give a bit of context, because we were talking about 2020, which was last year. Mm-hmm. In years to come, in a decade's time, really needs clarification what was going on in that year. Yeah. Because box office takings were sort of around that $400 million mark as opposed to the 2 to $3 billion mark yeah. for the top box office. And so we thought, you know, if we got films being released in 2020, we need to let people know that this was a pandemic year. Hence why we had such sort of interesting box office results. There are years where there's the writers and actors strike. Yes. And that really impacted the quality of film coming out. So we thought, you know, what better thing to do is to just take a look at some key moments in a year. Yeah. Just give a bit of context as what's going on. A bit on. of cultural context. Yeah, it's, it's pretty important. And also what was the big awards darling that year. Oh, yes. yes. So 1984 is actually a really important year for cinema. Yeah. Not a, I think it's a vintage year. Oh, um, another and, one. Yeah, and we have talked about some films in 1984 already, but 1984 is actually the year that the PG-13 rating, rating was released. Ah, so, that's um, good. Thanks to two films, which we'll talk about in a moment, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Gremlins. Wow, so they didn't like it when he ripped out the heart. Yeah, and Gremlins is pretty terrifying. Oh, Gremlins is mad terrifying, man. It's <laughs> just like cysts busting on people's yeah, backs and shit. Yeah, it's pretty gross, isn't it? It is. Um, the big Oscar darling for 1984 was Armadeus. Armadeus, Armadeus. Had eight Oscar wins, uh, including Best Film, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay. Now, there was an odd-looking actor again. F. Maria uh, Abram? No, no, the main actor who played Armadeus. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Um, Armadeus actually was really interesting as well because it was the first film ever to have two actors in a Best Actor nomination. Mm. They'd never had two actors from the one film in the Best Actors. So I thought he had won the main, the person that plays Armadeus. I thought he'd won Best Actor. But um, F. Murray Abram actually won the initial the the actor for his uh, Soliari performance. Also uh, nominated in that was Sally Field with her role in Places in the Heart. Oh, so they were pretty much the big Oscar darlings that year. I think the Killing Fields were in there as well. Good movie, um, So, come, come. Craig, you want to hear what was released in nineteen eighty four? Number one, Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, Eddie Murphy. On Eddie Murphy, coming to America Part 2. It's coming on to Amazon this year. I haven't watched the trailer yet. I'm scared that it's going to look not it great. It actually looks hilarious. Oh, does it? So oh, good. seriously, I shit you not. I actually, you watch it and you 
actually very surprised. Oh. The, the, but they they play on the barbershop scene. Oh, cool. And the barbershop scene is just hilarious. Uh, I'll watch the trailer after we finish up here. I'm really excited for it. Number two, Ghostbusters. Ooh. So, so the original. Yeah, of, the original yeah. Ghostbusters. The real Ghostbusters. Yeah. Okay, just making sure. <laughs> uh, number three <laughs> was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Oh, so, I, so Ghostbusters did beat it. Yep. Mm. Now, controversial opinion. Yes. Jeff's least favourite Indiana Jones film. <sighs> uh, number four, Gremlins. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we've got a pretty good year This is so a great far. year, man. Mowgli, what a legend. Number five. Is it Mowgli? No, it's not Mowgli. What's his uh, name? Man? Mowgli's Gizmo? the fr- Gizmo. Mowgli's the freaking Jungle, jungle Book. book. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. Number five was The Karate Kid. Ah, uh, yeah. Love so it. Who directed those? Kid. No idea. I know. No idea. It'd God. be interesting to find out. I know. Ironically, Cobra Kai is getting to like the fourth season. I've got friends that are frothing on it. Oh, man. There are people who just go nuts yeah, on it. Yeah. Our friend, Johnny Rourke, who was on our Back to the Future Johnny 3 episode, uh, he said the, Johnny the last episode of the third season of Cobra Kai was one of the best finales of a season that he's ever seen. Bullshit. Mandalorian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mandalorian. That episode <laughs> Mandalorian was season crazy. Two. But, um,. Yeah, it goes to show you the impact of a Karate Kid, man. Yeah. Still living. Still going. Still living. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to say I enjoyed the remake. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. I've never seen Jackie the remake. Jackie Chan. Oh, yeah, As Mr. Miyagi. But it's more the Kung Fu Kid. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Uh, number six was Police Academy. Oh, I <laughs> yeah. love that. Now, there's a gobble of a million ever I've seen one. Loved it. Number seven was Footloose. Oh, Footloose, really? So this is a great top this is seven. A damn top year, man. Number eight we've talked about in our first season. Robert Zemeckis with Romancing the Stone. Oh. Yep. Yeah, Robert finally making money. Yep. Cinematic win that led to Back to the Future. Good work. Um, number nine, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. It's the only one that I'm sort of like, I uh, don't know. Yeah, no. I'm pretty sure they found him. Number 10. <laughs> they did. Yeah, in the reboot. Yeah, yeah, in the reboot. Yeah, they found him. They found him. Uh, number 10. Ron Howard released the Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah rom-com. Oh, Splash. Oh, man. John Belushi. Oh, not John Belushi. John Candy. John Candy. So my bad. Yeah. Oh. My bad. Uh, Both heart attack victims, I think. Also... <laughs> <laughs> also released one by drugs one by bacon <laughs> <laughs> I say that with love because I love John Candy yes and he loved bacon yeah Canadian Can bacon, bacon. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't watched that movie man. <laughs> I've watched uh, it once have you oh, I can't remember oh, it. it's sad because it, it, it I pushed it out of my brain oh, just because they call it his last film and I don't really want his career to end so I don't want to watch it yep, yep. also released Craig in 1984 this is Spinal Tap Oh, really? Yeah. Such a funny movie, man. So it's one of those ones. First time I watched it, I hated it. Same. I couldn't you just had stand to be it. And then the older I get, I'm like, oh, these guys are geniuses. His humor, their humor is just, yeah, it's too too subtle for yeah. a child brain. Hey? <laughs> teenager young, doesn't get it. teenager brain. Even the whole cue coming down the pants, I'm just like, that makes no That's sense all at all. It. Just, yeah, just it's so silly, it. isn't it? <laughs> Um, but in the best way, Sixteen Candles was released. Oh, really? Molly Ringwald yep. at her best, man. Well, John Hughes is pumping breakfast, as well. Breakfast Club's the best, but I'm not up far up there. I put this one on for Craig Killian, Revenge of the Nerds. Duh, Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> <laughs> I did it just so I could hear that noise again. Oh, I um, love it, love it. Drew Barrymore was in Firestarter. 
Oh, really? Wow, it's that long ago. Little baby. I Damn, I love that film, man. She was good in it, too. His irony is every time she used her firepowers, a, a weird wind would gush in her face. <laughs> <laughs> would you really go, Can the I tell wind's you that, blowing that way, the fire's going to come back you know in your face. know what was crazy? So uh, I went to, uh, where did I go? I went to a volcano in Vanuatu. Yeah. And we sat, I sat on the edge of it. So I sort of dangled my feet over. In hindsight, probably not a wise move. No, no. But anyways, I did it. I was stupid. But before the volcano erupted, it actually sucked air into the volcano, then pushed it out. So your hair got pushed forward. And then when it erupted, it shot it back. Awesome. So it's sort of like, actually, the only place that I've seen do a realistic sort of portrayal of that is every time Gandalf is in the Lord of the Rings near all that sort of lava and stuff. His hair, the way it's moving around and swirling. I'm like, oh, that's how I saw people's hair when I was near a volcano. Oh, wow. So when you say the fire starter thing, I'm sort of like, oh, that sort of makes possibly a bit of sense. True, true. But anyways. Not uh, really. I don't she think destroys really. like this whole um, area where they did experiments on it and created it. And Stranger Things before Stranger Things? Oh, it is. It's incredibly. It is. It's very much Stranger Things before. And I'm wondering why Stephen King hasn't sued yet. Was it one of his books? Or oh, it sued Stranger Things? Yeah. Yeah, okay. It's very much like that. Like, you just find out this kid... Oh, I guess there's enough differences. And there's enough kids who are, you know, created at birth who have powers and shit like that. Yeah. So. Speaking of suing, um, did you see today Rowan Atkinson's come out criticising Friends? Friends? Yeah, the TV show Friends. No. So there's it's a, on Friends, wasn't he? There's no. Um, there was the Mr. Bean episode where yeah. he goes to cook a turkey and he gets his head stuck in it at Christmas time, yeah. which was released in the early nineties. In the mid nineties, Friends released an episode which is one of their iconic episodes, the one with the turkey, where Monica gets her head stuck in the turkey, and he's come out in the press. This someone asked him about it this week in the press because he's got a new TV show coming out, and he's like, "Oh, they pretty much stole my joke." Yeah, and and people are like, "Well, what are you going to do about it?" As there's all this like Willie Sue friends. You no, know? why would he? He doesn't. Oh, that, care. What a compliment! It is. It is. It is. What's Huge it? compliment. Imp- 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 imitation is the highest form. Of- yeah, that's exactly right. Actually, uh, when we were back in the day, people at home doing our movie reviews. Yeah, I had a chance to interview Alan Menken, who is the composer, multiple Academy Award winning composer yeah. for Disney, and he's actually um, the most living Academy Award wins. Oh, wow. So he's got the most uh, for a living person. But I asked him about the Simpsons singing Under the Sea in an episode. Did they ask permission? How do you feel about that? And he actually said they didn't ask permission. They just changed it enough that they wouldn't get in trouble. But he's like, when you see Homer Simpson singing one of your songs, you can't help but feel flattered. I know. It's over. (laughs) It's over. One of the greatest icons ever. And I think Rowan Atkinson needs to sit back and go, what I think honor. he has because he, he hasn't raised that any time before. No, you, you think someone would have really done something. just put on the spot and he just said yep. it. Yep. Also released, Craig, Farlap. Oh, Farlap. Yeah, oh I'll put God. that on for you. Thank you. Thank you. I love that movie <laughs> so much. Uh, so much. Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America was released. Oh, really? Yeah. I read something about that the other day. Uh, probably because James Wood's going crazy. Oh, but he's, <laughs> he's been going there for a while, yeah, he's been here. He's been here a while. He's been here a while. Um. Oh, I can't remember what it is. Yeah, shitballs. No worries. We're getting old. Yeah, exactly. I'm getting old. Speaking of quality films, Rhinestone was released. 
I can't remember. Sylvester Stallone. Oh, Dolly yeah, Parton. I still haven't seen it. No, no, I have seen it. I saw it with Dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John's, oh, goodness. John's at home going, have you fucking seen it? Yeah, I have seen it. Oh, sorry, John. I remember it. It just took me a moment. Um, also released was The NeverEnding Story. I love it. The Last Starfighter. Oh, Jeff, you're just hurting me. Bro. What a quality year. Oh, man, seriously. Yeah, the, just this here in The Last Starfighter makes me creep. John Milius's Red Dawn was released. Still haven't seen it. It's good. Yeah. Check it out. It's good 80s action. Actually, I have seen it. Charlie Sheen. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking of the new remake. No, nah, remake wasn't bad. It was more um, <laughs> Tomorrow When the War Began. Than, uh, uh, okay. Uh, but Armadeus was released, as we talked about. The Nightmare on Elm Street was released. The original? Yeah. Oh, what a great, great show. Where's Craven, man? Good director. Yeah, I'd love to do it. I wouldn't mind doing a little bit of Oh, man, it'd be season. very interesting. Hey, yeah. it'd be very interesting I would to be do Wes Craven. Can you remind me later, Craig? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, been a while definitely. since I've watched Red Eye. Oh, really? Yeah. Where's Killian Murphy. My day. Oh, it was Killian Murphy. It's just love awesome. It. Love it. David That's Lynch's... Rachel McAdams, too. Yeah. I love Rach. David Lynch's Dune was released. Brilliant. Man, seriously, still a brilliant film. That's obviously Never got me onto Dune. Never seen it. Oh, it's nothing like the book. Oh. Absolutely nothing. Oh, it is. It's like the book. Like you, 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 you can recognize most of the film through it. If you watch, there's like three, four different versions out there. It's like Alexander. There's oh, so many different cuts, versions and cuts and shit. Interesting. Um, but Blade Runner. Yes, but if you, um, you'll recognize the book, but the book, the David Lynch has lynched it. Okay. Yes. Okay. It's got Lynchian. It's very Lynchian. Yes. Yeah. Very so good. And lastly. James Cameron releases a little film called The Terminator. Oh, yeah. go Bill Baxter. Yes, I know. So, 1984. See, Arnie's, Arnie was in the news lately. I did see Arnie in the news. Not to get political, but Fighting he brings out his Conan rights. sword. Yeah, I know. It's so That's good, awesome isn't shit. it? <laughs> <laughs> I love Arnie. I love him. So, that was 1984 in film. Yep. Bit of a rundown of where we're at, too, in terms of cinema. Pretty darn good year. That's as, an amazing year. As I mentioned, Craig, no real information out there about budget. Cool. It would be pretty low. Oh, yeah. And box office takings low. in the thousands. The biggest part of that budget was the motorbikes. Yeah, and from the interviews on the Blu-ray, they've pretty much borrowed them off people. I'm so, surprised they could give one away. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably yeah. Probably most of their budget was just doing that. Yeah. Um. So, Craig. I'm going to hazard a guess there's not been a lot of people who've seen The Loveless. No. It was a bit of a difficult one to track down. Mm. Um, not really on any streaming services. Nowhere. Uh, I actually did see there was a cinema in Melbourne showing it earlier uh, at the end of last year. Oh, wow. Yeah, pretty crazy. That's amazing. I'm they, very impressed. They did a Catherine Bigelow retrospective. Oh, okay, that's And cool. it was part of that. Um, so, But I think people need to get out there and check it. It uh, is one of those films, man. I, I'm pretty sure SBS will pop it up sometime. Yeah, someone will, will pop something up. So, When's Catherine Bigelow's next film coming out? There's no real word at the moment. Okay, yeah, because usually is. when they bring her film out, SBS pretty much do a... Those early runs of films. Yeah, exactly. Show, like they? I was talking before, Near Dark is on SBS On Demand because yep. they have a women direct... They had yeah, focus uh, on female directors. Yeah, female directors. Yeah, Love it. Um, also, for those US listeners thinking, where can I watch Near Dark? What's going on? You have to subscribe to the Criterion channel. That's yes. the only place got it. Um, but for those people at home, Craig, that may not know what The Loveless is about, may need a bit of a refresher. Let's just take a moment and let's just hear about it. 
When a motorcycle gang are forced to spend a few days in a small town while their bike is being repaired, a heck of a lot of trouble is sure to go down. It's Catherine Bigelow's debut film and a love letter to the rockabilly scene. Let's talk about The Loveless. So good, Craig. Now, we look at each film and we start off each film's discussion. Yes. By just taking a moment and asking each other, what did we expect from the film? So, first thing first, have you seen it before? Never. All right. And you? No, haven't seen it. This is very much, like I said, I haven't seen any Catherine Bigelow work until Point Break. Yeah. So, this is all unknown quantities for me. Really looking forward to Blue Steel. Yeah, awesome film. Um, But, so, yeah, don't know what I was expecting. What, what did you expect? from the film before seeing it, Craig? Um, I obviously, knowing that Willem Dafoe is in it, I expected to see his dick. <laughs> <laughs> we I came expected close. to see we came little, close. little Dafoe. <laughs> no, no, I, just, um, I didn't know what to expect. Like, um, it was just one of those films where just... It's, I was thinking, maybe is it like a rebel, you know, like um, yeah, rebel without a cause type yep. thing, or you know, um, I can't. I'm trying to. I'm going blank now um, about Marlon Brando's motorbike one. Yeah, but which is horrible. The wild, wild one, wild, wild ride, something. Like that. There's can't. actually in the in the Blu-ray. I'll it's just horrible. It. I can't think of it. It's it's. What? Um, I think that's the film that it gets. Lichen to Yeah um, I've got it here In the little book I'll just open it up oh, yeah, I was going to say The Wild Bunch But we know it's not that uh, Where is it here So um, do, 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 The Wild One Yes In I'm the sure 50s that's, Yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so The Wild One And um, And so I was expecting Something very similar to that Yeah um, Yeah And they, that's pretty much What I was expecting Yeah it's interesting I don't know what I was expecting Um my experience of rockabilly style films, I knew because I'd done a little, a little, not a lot of research, but I just actually started preparing our Spotify playlist yeah. for when, when we were released. So just having listened to some music ahead of time just to sort of give myself a, a bit of a chance. And hearing all the rockabilly music on the soundtrack, I suddenly was like, oh, this is going to be like, I kept thinking of Johnny Depp's Crybaby. <laughs> yes, you know, which is this obscure film? You know, I think it's a John Waters film actually. It is. Um, and so I was really concerned that it, I knew Bigelow wouldn't bring that mm. that sort of oddballness to it. But I still just didn't know what to expect from the cultural aspect of it. I was also, I don't know what I was going to expect from Bigelow. So I guess I was trying to think about it right. I looked at her filmography after our intro episode and I was going, she only has, you know, like eight to ten films. Yeah. I can't remember the original thing, the exact number. I should probably just open my book and look at it here. So, yeah, she's got uh, ten films. Cool. And so you think from the 70s to now, which is essentially a, you know, 40-year career. Pretty much. That's a film every four years. Oh, wow. But she keeps making these big films that seem to have an impact every time something's released. Yeah. In some way, shape, or form, it makes an impact. Like, you think about uh, when Hurt Locker was released, it was like, whoa, what is this? Yeah. And then Zero Dark Thirty got released, and everyone was like, whoa, what is this? Yeah. And Point Break. 
Yeah, Point Break is Keanu the same. Reeves is uh, like, whoa. The more, <laughs> the more I'm <laughs> learning about Near Dark, the more it's got this huge cult following. Mm. Um, and so I guess I expected quality from the get-go. Yeah. But I guess our experience from first films, which when we talked about it previously, you know, uh, aside from... You know, we've had some great first films. If you think about Zack Snyder's uh, Dawn of the Dead yep. as a first film, it's slick, it's punchy, it's it's really well-rounded, but his history as a music video director and as a and documentary director, director yeah. uh, it, it brings him to a space where you'd expect that slickness. Yeah, it's like where he knows director. his way around a camera. Yeah. yeah. And so I guess uh, knowing a bit about this it really being you know, Bigelow's first major production, you go, oh, wow, is this going to be more a blood, guts, bullets and octane, <laughs> which is someone really trying to find their feet? Yeah. And, like, I think about that Joe Carnahan season and his growth from first film to last film is it shows how with hard work and determination you can become really good at something. His growth from his first to his second was pretty yeah. fucking amazing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, totally. That's what's, it's, it's one of those things that you and I know, like some of these first films, yep. you watch them and you go, how did someone spot the talent in that? Yeah, yeah. Um, but then you see that growth of the things, the seeds that were in those first yep. films. Yeah. Totally. And, you know, you do think about Ron Howard, there was you could see a little bit of talent in there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Zemeckis, you can definitely see some talent in that there. Was the, that still is the most polished. Well, I'm going to throw it out there. I think The Loveless is probably the most complete first film that we've got. Oh, With the beats, I think Zemeckis wins. Like yeah. Zemeckis has a better structure. Yeah. Like he has an actual, like, they're both, it's, they're both, Sort of like um, adventure film on a way to something. Yeah. You know, they're both on their way to something, which is really not the point. It's the journey. Yes. Um, I think he does the structure better. Obviously, Zemeckis does the structure better. Yep. Um, but I would say this is the most impressive first film. Um, second. I would say second. I would say it's um, more impressive than Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, I would like, too. From a director's perspective. Yeah, yeah. From movies I enjoy, nah. Dawn of the Dead is yeah. the but movie as a director, that I love above. As a first film, it's the one I love more than most of them. Well, Dawn well, of the Dead. Except for Evil Dead, man. By right. Evil Dead still awesome. Dawn of the Dead should be a second film. Yeah, exactly. And it's like the quality is so high. You go, that should have been a second film. Instead, Zack Snyder drops 300 as his second film, yeah, which is just wild. But I think The Loveless... It doesn't feel like... When you hear Bigelow talk about the blind leading the blind, mm. I just expect people feeling their way around, hoping that something would come together. Like a Blood, Guts, Bullets and Octane. You know, Blood, Guts, Bullets and Octane, we learnt was uh, Carnahan saved it in the editing suite. Yeah. And so The Loveless feels like a film that was pretty well written for an art piece. I think all the... I think she did brilliantly with the resources at hand. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um Obviously, I think it's lucky that she had Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Um, everyone he else, is a powerhouse in this film. Everyone else, uh, borderline horrible. Yeah. Um, just like 
distractingly horrible. Yeah. So you really need to focus on Catherine Bigelow's directing. Yeah. <laughs> to which, get through some pieces. Uh, but we, you're right. The writing's good. Yeah. Like it's, it's just, a. It could be if it, if they had better supporting cast. Yeah. They'd be pulled off superb. I think the box office release. And the way that it was released sort of in festivals around the world for mm. a bit before getting a, a release. And the low budget, I'd, I'd say this is probably a student film that was way better than it should have been. Yes. And as a result, it got more credibility. Probably the addition of Robert Gordon is a, another bit of the credibility factor for the film. But essentially, this could have been a student film. But it was more than that. And I think that's what's really impressive about it because I think you watch this film and you can go, Catherine Bigelow's in there. Because yeah. there are definitely elements of this film that I can see Catherine Bigelow in it. Oh, it, there's incredible elements of it. Um, and But there's also elements where I go, ooh, Montgomery and that very David Lynch-style taste yes. um, takes over towards the yes. end. Yes. Um, and that's where it gets choppy. Yep. Um, where I think the more subtle moments, yes, um, and the setups, and obviously what she would have storyboarded or whatever she thought in her brain, yep. um, just it looks like just beautiful Bigelow. Yeah, like, don't get me wrong, I won't, I won't lie, I didn't enjoy the movie. Yeah, um, it's not a movie that I'm gonna watch again. Yeah, um, but man, watching it from a perspective of you know the ones we've seen previously as a first. Man, she is confident. Isn't she? She is strong in her vision. Yeah. She is strong in her colours, the way she's she holds a camera. Yeah. Um, and what she gets Framing. out of and, and what she gets out of um what she gets out of the foe. Yeah. Yeah. Incredibly crazy. And the fact that you're telling me that these guys were just um fumbling around Friggin' blindly in the blind makes it even more impressive yeah, that she pulled that it out. It does, doesn't so it? So the editor must have put it out beautifully. Editor, or director of photography. Just, or it was already just there, you know what I mean? Yeah. Can we talk editing for a moment, Craig? Yeah. Because I think something I didn't expect for this film, Craig and I talked about it, uh, this was strangely homoerotic, the Sh- film. Strangely, I think it's strangely erotic. Yes. I yeah, that's probably more what I'm erotic. Towards. Yeah, it just happens to cross both barriers. You know yes. what I mean? Um, and it sits in that asexual yes. type thing yes. where it's Perfect, just sexual Craig. across the board. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's almost like everybody was in love one, with each other. Yeah, at one no, 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 no love. There's love less here. Just wants to, just wants to literally just fuck each other. That's true, Craig. Like, and then that's oh. that's you know. It's, it's just has that feeling of, and there was a weird thing where Jeff and I were just like, man, they're going to kiss, aren't they? They're going to kiss. Well, there were moments with like- With everyone. The, with, yeah. With and everyone. I think it's probably editing that does it. It's so shots linger on looks. Yeah. And it's really strange. So I- I'm glad you said the... But also writing, remember? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's there's moments. But, like, it really is this is erotic tension within the film. Yeah. There was a couple moments Craig and I were like, if this became a porn film, it would totally make sense. Oh, yeah. Like that just random guy going up to the guy and the thing, can I sit on this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can sit on it. It's so <laughs> strange. And then it just, for a second, goes quiet as they look at each other. 
Yes. Yeah, they're going to get it on. I said to Jeff, they're going to get it on. A couple no, times. Cut the next scene. Yeah. Like, so it just lingers in that way. But the tension in it, I don't think I was expecting it. Yeah. Which is really interesting going into Near Dark as the next film, which I've not seen. Strangely now, I think I'm expecting that erotic tension mm. from a vampire movie. So um, really interesting. But I think that was something so unexpected in the film. Um, I was also really unexpected. But it ramps up. It, it definitely ramps so up. So the, the erotic tension ramps up. It's almost, um, I guess the movie might be some form of sexual allegory or something like that. It wouldn't but, surprise me. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me either. But it ramps up because at the start, it's it's it's. I would say it starts off sort of menacing. Yes. Then sexual, then sexually menacing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Do in, you know in the it, last part. It would almost be like, it's probably too cheesy to go there, but if the film ended with a torrential downpour, it would make it, heaps it of did, sense. Did it? Did it? I know it definitely ended in the night time in the car oh, no, park. No, I don't. Yeah, because I don't remember. But it's almost like, you know that tension that builds as a storm is brewing? Yeah. It feels like that through the film. So you're waiting for the storm to break. Yeah. And then everyone calm down and then go home. So it just seemed really strange to me. I guess like my brain just goes, oh, it would have made so much sense if we went there because it was almost like my sister talks about they lived in Darwin for a while and there's a month where the, the humidity gets yeah. such in Darwin. They call it mango madness and people just go crazy. They get violent. They get uber sexual and it's just the tension from the humidity. And I just kept thinking about the night times in Georgia yeah. in the summertime, which would be thick and humid and their only relief is to get into a sweaty bar and watch the waitress work as a stripper and all those things. Yeah, weird. And that weird, I guess they're the Lynchian sort That's of moments, That's the Lynchian moments. That's a def- the last five minutes is is almost pure Lynch. If, he, if I found out he came in and just directed that part, it would make so friend, much sense. Like, oh, and God. there's that monologue um, Defoe delivers about the frog. Yeah. And and things like that that you just go, oh man, like I guess I agree. They are non bigelow moments. Yeah, they seem like non bigelow moments because it almost seems it, it it almost pulls the rug out from under you. So yeah, you, so in the movie, obviously, um, as you probably heard, anything the car, you know, the motorbike breaks um, down. Breaks down. They pull over in a small town. Yeah. Um, there's a evil rich guy in the town. Like yep. he always is an evil rich guy. Um, Defoe sleeps with his daughter, blah, yep. blah, blah, all this stuff. And then all these different stories that happen around start to converge into this bar at night. Yeah. Now, And then you think you know where this is going. Yep. But it, it, then it goes in a weird way of getting there once it's in the bar that night. That's where once they all step into that bar, the <laughs> Lynch red light turns on, like yeah, literally does, turns on. And and then the camera work is just pure Lynch, and then it just turns on. Even has the um, freaking smoke, yes, <laughs> smoke machines go through and shit like that. And that's yep. where that scene comes out. And it's yeah, it's different, man. It it does take. I'd love to know. Uh, I was really hoping that I would discover it in my research. You know that there was 
half a film directed by Bigelow and then half a film directed by Montgomery. Or, yeah. you know, there were there were defining moments that you could go... I think you could see defining moments that are not... That yeah. are him and not... Because especially if he's such a... You know, it, it can't be a coincidence that it feels Lynchian and he's such a Lynchian guy. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, he obviously produced Lynch films. I'm yep. sure he was friends with probably Lynch at the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? They have most likely had the incredibly same sensibilities. Yes. And so, um, yeah, it can't be no coincidence that, that that last part feels like that. It's so crazy. There are... Let's talk Bigelow moments, Craig. Where Were there moments in the film... Uh, I've got a couple I've written down that you go... Ooh, like, I think she, I think that's going to pop up later. Like the first moments, man. That aerial shot of him yep. on the bike. They were shot on the bike, and yep. it keeps it on there. Yeah. Um. You know, I mean, this is before friggin', you know, before bloody you could use a drone to do that shot. Yes. Um. And in the car park at the yeah, end, she she expresses, she does beautifully for a road movie. Yeah. So whenever it's a road movie, obviously when it when it accentuates the motorbikes, yeah. When obviously the motorbikes are running, yeah. Or the fast cars, yes. Um, she brings that beautifully. You know what I mean? These yeah. are just the tropes that are now everywhere in Fast and Furious movies, or any car lover film, yeah. or um, road lover film. You see that? You know that one where the for those of you who don't know the camera that sits on the middle of the road, yeah, and watches the bike leave off. You yes. know what I mean? How the camera sits. Like almost looks at a car or a motorbike the same way Michael Bay looks at a at underage a girl's ass. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and, <laughs> and, it's, and it looks it's hardcore. Yeah. No, I I totally agree. I also think there are moments the the scene where Willem Dafoe and the sixteen year old girl are driving around together and they're heading off to the hotel room. Yeah. And they're in the car and they're drinking and I think they go to the uh, African-American bottle yeah. shop. That Those sort of scenes where they're on the road makes me think of those moments with uh, Keanu Reeves and um, oh, Laurie, Laurie, Laurie <laughs> Petty in the in Point Break. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. You know those oh, moments where yeah. they're driving together? I love Laurie Petty. So that they really made me think of those moments. Yeah. Um, there was another one that was really big that I was like, oh, there's a moment where towards the end they go back into the hotel. I think it's like after Willem Dafoe and the girl have, have made love. And on the TV screen there's a news story about um, some race riots going on. She's a, she has her eye on that. And there's a Doesn't couple of she? times it brings it up in the film. Yeah. Especially like you find out that that young 16-year-old girl is racist. Yes. Um, there's a real racial... Tension and I undertone. Think it's, I think it's logical to the area that they're in. Very much so. Yeah, and so you could see that. You could see the hierarchy. They build the hierarchy well in that town. Yeah. Considering they only really go to two, three different destinations. Yeah, yeah, location-wise. You, know, you think, there. oh, he's at a motel. Well, actually, the motel's attached to the bar that you see at the end. Yeah. <laughs> you go, oh, yeah. okay, cool. Makes total sense. Small town. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But I do love the fact that it feels like we're going to see that more. We know we're going to see that more in Catherine Bigelow's oh, yeah, film, especially yeah. towards the back end of her, her thing. But I think I love the idea that she's already has a political voice that yeah. she's not afraid to use in her films. Yeah. And even from that early age of her career, the... the um the political nature is there as an undertone. I yeah. think that's something I look forward to seeing how she blends or if she blends into her earlier films. 
So I did see that and go, oh, there's a there's a real Bigelow-ism. Yeah, if exactly. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what like actually pops out as her. Yes. Bigisms. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I guess when I really think about the film, I love that we started pulling it apart because there's all these elements that you bring about the film that I go, oh, you know, especially the idea that, you know, there is no love between any of them. No, well, actually, as I was thinking that more, um, thanks you reminding me because that was the point I wanted to bring up again, is it's funny that I, I'm one of the reasons I guess they call it the loveless is there's not, there's, there's, there may be, there's a, this film is sexually charged. Yes. Is probably the word to say. Yeah. But there's no intimacy in this film. No way. No way. The there's people no that inti- you think are in a relationship yeah. together. Yeah. Both go off and pursue other people. And that, yeah, exactly. Cause that's, and it's ironic that that happens because you think that they're probably the closest to a true relationship in yeah. the film. Yeah. But you realize at the end that gets broken down as well. Yeah. When you realize, He's almost just a pimp. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um and yeah, there is no there is no intimacy but there it's it's a town literally that has no love for each other. Yeah. You know, there's there's no even really the built. relationship between the father and her daughter. Yeah. And his daughter. Yeah, exactly. There's no love in that. He's no, actually definitely. in it's an abusive, abusive relationship. relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So even even the way that, you know, again, the waitress who you think is probably a really wholesome person yeah. in her role, the way that that, I guess when I really think about it, is what you expect from the characters, it all gets subverted That's towards the end of so the film. That's what's so weird about the end of the film. Yeah. So in Willem Dafoe's character is really, he's not so much, he's not so much a protagonist. Like he doesn't, he may trigger some, but a lot yeah. of the, a lot of the movie, he's almost the observer. Yes. Um, even though obviously he, you know, he sleeps with the girl, or he's in the, he's in pretty much every scene. Yeah. He doesn't actually trigger many things in there. You yeah. know what I mean? And so that's when at the end, that's I guess one of the disappointing, obviously spoiler, disappointing thing is when you get to the end, and especially after he talks about the frog and the cherry. Yeah. You're gonna go, oh, good. I'm gonna see. Why Willem Dafoe is the leader of this game? Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, no. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't. Fluffs out. Fluffs it, out. It's interesting. Just jog memory. There is a shooting at the end of the film. Yes. Yeah, so the girl. Uh, That's right. The daughter. The sixteen-year-old comes, comes in and shoots her dad. Yeah. Now originally the dad was going grabs one of the bikies guys. He's going to fight one of them. No, oh, no, he he. he Oh, sexually right. charged moment. Yes. He went, when he's in the toilet with this one of these guys, yes. he's looking at the guys. Do you was it Robert Gordon? No, 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 no. Robert Gordon. Oh, is, it's the very. Um, it's there's the, a very androgynous. Yeah, guy exactly. that wears the hat. Yeah, and so he grabs him naked, like pulling his pants down, and brings him out. Yes, that's And brings right. him out, and then just as you think everything's going to go because everyone pulls guns or blah blah, yeah. blah blah, she she comes and shoots at dad. Um, and then for some crazy reason, Robert Gordon just starts shooting everywhere else. Yeah, and laughing as and he's laughing doing as it. he does it. The heaps. That's where there's heaps Lynch. You know, there's just smoke in the air. There's red lights. There's things blowing up and just weird cutting Lots in of between. Neon. Weird cutting in between. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, and because you don't know what's going what's going on with it, and you expect Willem Dafoe to do anything, but he just really just sits back and he watches these <laughs> yeah. things. He's just like he's 
freaking like he just watches that's why it, it almost feels like um and i'm sorry to keep harping on the lynching but it feels like those old twilight zone tv series where yeah it's that one stranger who comes into town watches a town dissolve yep and then walks out of town again. Yeah, you know what I mean. He's, and he totally does. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and he does. <laughs> it and he, but he comes. It's it's like a serialized thing. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. It feels episodic in 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 nature that he just comes in. He does. He'll interact here and there. Yep. Then then we'll say something dramatic and walk out. Yes, it's you know so I mean? true, Craig. Because he was maybe the the little spark that, you know, or the straw that broke the camel's back. You know yep. what I mean? And it's and that's what's so odd about the film. But hey, it's one of those things. I guess as more I'm, I'm thinking about the the more I'm enjoying the 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 mindfuck of it. You know what I mean? I well, I think emotion. the more we're discussing it, the more you realise there's such depth to this film. Oh, there I could don't, be. I or don't think. I'm just well, my head up I my think the more I've I've learnt in the last two episodes of Catherine Bigelow, mm. the more she's looking to subvert most things. Yeah. And the more that she's looking to get some sort of point across within her films. Yeah. So I think if we were to say, have we had a director yet that we've talked about on this um, podcast mm. in our five previous seasons that is probably an out-and-out artist trying to make a point in their filmmaking? I don't think we have yet. I think mm, there have your been... Your Yeah, and so I think we could very well be, and this is yeah, early no, days, I'm, I think Catherine Bigelow might be the first auteur that we've had on the podcast. Yeah, I can see... I've seen them evolve into it. Yes. Um, almost like because they're just bored of the path they're going, so they've yep. tried something new, you know what yep. I mean? Um, and we've seen them do that. We've seen them successfully and unsuccessfully yep. do that. Um, yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So I think when we're talking about these levels of depth, I think they're intentional. Yeah. And I think, again, probably highlights why I'm so impressed with this first film because it's probably far more intelligent than past first films. Oh, and yeah, there's a lot more depth to this film. You know, if we think, you know, The Evil Dead's an amazing first film. Yeah. Um, an incredible one, but it's a horror movie. Yeah. And it's just there for intelligent shock factor. Yeah, exactly. Intelligent filmmaking and shock factor, which is what horror is, really. Yeah, exactly. um, so I just love the depth of this film in it. And um, it's a bit of a, as well, I think amongst it all, essentially it's like this love letter to rockabilly culture. It is. You can see there's a, there's a good portion of that. Like yeah. where it's just basically... It... Well, it's 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 an automatic cult movie for yeah. those people. You know, you all, there's every. I I always joke that there's always one movie that every group will hold up above the rest. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you know, obviously for boxes it's Rocky. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. And so this would be for the that weird rockabilly group. It's so I assume if I went to Head and Greeter, <laughs> um, so Head and Greeter, which is near us, they've got a rockabilly festival. Yes. I reckon if we went there with the Loveless. I would say 70% of them have watched it. You reckon? Hell yes. I reckon it might be too smart for half of them. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean? The guys who do the, um, mullet, the mullet championship the mullet at the same time? The the same time. <laughs> so good. Um, I do love the the coverage shots within the film. Hmm. Really show the way that they're trying to highlight the culture. 
So those lingering shots on the jukebox. Yeah. Watching the record change. Or when the motorbike fires up and you're watching the belt take, or take the, charge. Or the Coke. Yeah, the Coke machine is the constantly Coke in there. The Coke machine is just everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. But also, like, the scenes where you have the guy rebuilding the bike. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, in I guess in a modern tale, that, that probably portion of it would be cut out. Or a montage. Yeah, it'd just be a montage. Dun, dun. Yeah. yeah. But um, you actually see him lovingly um, do the bike. He's restoring it, essentially, yeah, restoring isn't he? Bike, while you watch it on Get film. into, like, your sexual innuendo with yeah. the local boy. <laughs> <laughs> can I sit on it? <laughs> so yeah, crazy. Can sit on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it. it was so bizarre. It's hey. so bizarre. Some scenes are just... Uh, I, but I, I guess... If you look at it from our perspectives of, you know, and I'm pretty sure a lot of the guys or a lot of the people who are listening to this are watching all these movies, this successfully um, goes against what you think is going to happen. Yeah, 100%. So I think it's a successful original movie. Yeah, totally, totally. Mm. I have to say this was a pretty special experience for both of us because it's actually the first movie in all our films for the yeah, podcast, aside from Welcome to Marwin, oh yeah, yeah, that we've actually watched together. Exactly. Normally, Craig and I would watch this in our own time mm. and then come together to talk about it. And I actually really, I think the experience made the film better for me as well because yeah. it was so good to look over and go, that was pretty good, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was and really cool. It was shot. awkward during the homoerotic scenes, but. That's probably because well, I was winking at Jeff. <laughs> Craig kept staring at me. <laughs> <laughs> Where did this cucumber come from, Jeff? <laughs> you haven't seen the disappearing cucumber trick. <laughs> oh, gosh. I was concerned about you winking at me. <laughs> I'm making slurping noises. <laughs> well, I got so much jelly, I'm a gobble. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Yikes. So I guess, Craig, um, we could keep going into depth about this film, but I think as in terms of a first film, there's not a lot more we could really say about it. Oh, look, I really want to say that Defoe is... You, you know, you watch those films, there's certain films you're watching and you go, I know why that guy yep. became huge yeah or became who he is today and this is definitely that yes like you you watch this film you go man you can't see how anyone didn't watch this film and go that guy's gonna go nowhere yeah don't don't get me wrong like i guess uh, if you compare him to everyone else in the film everyone else in the film most of them are horrible actors yeah um but defoe just stands off the screen he's yeah he's got but he, he does it so well he's not you're almost waiting for a good side of his character yes. in this film, but you never see it. Yeah. Um, he has that almost casual menace to him yes. through the whole film. He has that androgynous look to him yes. in some parts of the film. Yes, he does. As well as the hard, hard look as well. Yeah. Um, it's, it, I was thinking earlier, it'd be, it, it wouldn't be all at all surprising if at the end of the film, you know, you find out he was the devil who just comes through to town yes. and, and triggers something. Al Pacino. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> if he just, his bike turned into the fire and he's. <laughs> 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 it's funny too, like he is androgynous 
in the film, especially like the, I'm sure it's culturally relevant, but the sunglasses that he's wearing, which yeah. are like these real slim but wide-pointed sunglasses. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And stuff like that. You're just like, oh, wow. Like I would expect from... That weird Oakley's face we used to have in the early, late 90s, yes, early 2000s yes, with the spiky sides. Yep. I actually saw the other day a little tangent. I was in uh, JB Hi-Fi, non-sponsors JB Hi-Fi. Um, they had a pair of Bose sunglasses. Oh, yeah, the ones with the... With the speaker built yeah. in. But have you seen those speakers or headphones that actually stick... You clip them to the bone outside of your ear? That's disgusting. What? So you know how oh, you've yeah, got that yeah, little yeah. bone there? The headphone sits there and the sound goes through the bone? Well, not into your eardrum. Oh, that's weird as shit. Strange, isn't Seriously, it? Seriously, that's heaps weird. I don't know. Part of me is like, oh gosh, that's scary. I saw it. <laughs> I'm getting I was, too old. I was at, I was at this <laughs> surf dive and ski going, talking about old. Yeah, and, surf, and dive surf dive and ski. Not a sponsor is, in any way, no, shape, or form. No, exactly. <laughs> just this young person shop. I don't know why I was in it. But they're, they're returning <laughs> the old Oakleys that have the, um, you know, the big Oakleys yeah. that the visor, you know, yep. the eight that you saw in the. 80s and stuff yep. like that when they used to think about the future. Yep. Yeah. Those, they're bringing them back. Oh, man. I was like, good lord. I've got a friend, he's Canadian. Shout out if you're listening, Wes. Love yeah, you. Canuck. Um, but he was, he works for Oakley or was working for Oakley. And so, yeah, he was really keen last year. So excited when he got a pair of those, oh. like official like ones. And he just thought that were the bee's knees. They make me think of... Um, Strangely, I don't know why, but I, whenever I see them, I think of someone with like a curly mullet working in Antarctica for the thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, the, the, just a, in a John Carpenter movie. Just sitting out there drinking with Sam, you know, with Joe Dirt. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so good. So overall, Craig, tell us what do you think of the Loveless? Um, I came into this podcast saying I didn't like it, but the more I'm talking about, it, the more. I see its importance. Yeah. Um, and that makes me like it more. The more I see its originality. originality. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I can't sit one day and bitch that I know where the movie's going all the time. Yeah. And then the next day bitch that it didn't go where I wanted it to. <laughs> so, um, and and I, and on second thought of this, yeah, I, it, man, I actually, I enjoy that twist to it. I enjoy yeah, that twist so to it. Good. Don't get me wrong. I would, look, if you don't go out and see it, if you can't find it, don't go into too much drama. <laughs> it's not going to, it's not going to change your life. Yeah. But it's a good start. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a start. I, I agree with you, Craig. I didn't walk away going, that was terrible. Mm. I actually walked away going, actually, I was really surprised by the quality that I got. Mm. Again, two film students working together to make a film. Yeah. You sort of expect a little bit of a hodgepodge. Um, Bigelow and Defoe. Yeah. And and really, Bigelow and Defoe are the reasons this film shines. Yes. I think, again, I'd love to just, I wish, I have to listen to the commentary because it will tell me how much of it was Montgomery, how much of it was Bigelow. Yeah, they'll probably make a complete liar out of me. Montgomery would be like, I wanted to do a big battle scene. <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't talk like that. But, uh, but I also, I agree with you, Craig. The The film has sort of rattled around my brain a little bit mm. and really sort of, the I love the breakdown that we were able to talk about in terms of the eroticism of the film. It was really surprising to me of how erotically charged it was. And I don't know if we're just... 
through our lives we've been erotically um, brainwashed into thinking that all leather is going to turn sexual. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that whole... It happened uh, in the Matrix. It happens in the Police Academy, which was released the same year. You know what I mean? And once they get into the oyster bar, do, 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 do. you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Love it. So I was really, I was quite impressed. This is really, for me, this is almost like on an I want to hold your hand level. Directing, directing talent, man, yep. shines. Acting talent, this is probably best first movie with a lead actor yeah yep totally uh the best yeah lead actor first movie yeah so i'm i'm pretty impressed and it actually gets oh, me the nerdy guy i want to hold your hand you get oh Brilliant. man that guy Brilliant. <laughs> we were talking about the polar express evie and i the other day and she's like i just don't like that kid with glasses <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my girl um but like it makes me really excited for what's to come same. In Catherine Bigelow's filmography, I'm I'm throwing it out there. I hoped that the Ron Howard season we'd end up with a master. Yeah, I think if there's someone that could genuinely be it, along with our Zemeckis, yeah, who's sort of in this one is the loneliest number at the moment. I think Catherine Bigelow, knowing the later films and the quality she has in those later films, and I'm really interested when we get to Point Break to see if it's a well-directed film or if it's just a Hollywood blockbuster. I only knew it as a popcorn film, so I've yeah. never seen it through any other light. So I'm really I'm really excited for that because mm. it's actually been so long since I've seen... You ever watch a remake? Point watch. Break. I did watch a remake and did it you? wasn't terrible. Mm. It's on a... I'd say it's on a Fast and Furious level of films. Mm. You know, just in terms of dumb popcorn film. Yeah. Bit of fun. Edgar Ramirez is great as Bodhi. I just wish he did more. Edgar Ramirez? Yeah. Yeah, he's got he's so fantastic. much potential. He's fantastic. I, I would love... I think he's got a really cool sort of... He could he could have been a Bucky Barnes. He could have been a Bond villain. Oh, what a villain he could be. Yeah. Do you know what you need? But they'd be picking on it because after Happy Hour Bud, then oh. like, uh, there's a heaps of... There's Spanish-looking dude. <laughs> Too many Latinos in Too Bond films. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love Javier Bardem in Skyfall. Far oh, man, I loved him in Skyfall, man. He was just <laughs> threatening. That moment that he pulls the, the teeth out. But, yeah, I, I think it's really got me uh, hopeful for the rest of the... I was already hopeful. I thought Bigelow's a good director, mm. a great director. But I think this has really got me quite excited for what's to come yeah and what we're going to get to tackle in this podcast uh, yeah exactly uh, and it's just exciting it just is not, isn't it not ron howard oh look, <laughs> look i love I, i'm sort of worried that i i at the last parts of ron howard i was just like it's <laughs> 2020 man there's so much shit going on Ron's pissing me off. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I don't, and I don't want to, and I was worried I'm being be dismissive of it. But oh, hey, I watched Hillbilly Elegy. Well, we're, we're looking, we, at time of recording, we haven't released our Hillbilly Elegy yep. episode yet. We've both uh, watched it and are going to record very soon that one. Yeah, so look, look out for that one. We'll go back and have a listen. There's yeah. some good old episodes. Yeah. But I was a bit the same with Ron Howard. I think I wasn't as burnt as you were mm. by Ron Howard. But I think. It was quite a long season. 
2020 was a big year, man. Yeah, I think 2020 was just a big year. I don't know if it's just... Yeah. Let's just call Ron, my pandemic Ron Howard hate. <laughs> <laughs> he got COVIDed. He got covid I'm sorry, Ron, man. I'm sorry you're the happiest... You look like the happiest dude in the world. Before. He does, doesn't he? he Every does, time I he? see your face now, I'm just going to think of 2020. And I, that doesn't work, man. It doesn't <laughs> poor work. Ron. Know, poor Ron, hey. Poor, poor Ron. Ron. Um, so, yeah, I'm really keen on this season. So, normally, we would get to this point in the episode, Craig, and we would take a moment and we would look to rank our film. We would look over to the Cineful Studio whiteboard, which is sitting there, turned away from oh, us it right is, now. It is. Okay. It's sitting right I there. I looked there because it was the only blank space. Oh, there the studios. Uh, I feel like we start every season and I say, studios are under renovation at the moment and we've moved <laughs> things around again. Uh, we are back under renovation again in Cineful Studios. Uh, but... I think what's really interesting with this film, because there is so much unknown quantity at the start of this season, mm. I don't know. You know, normally you'd watch a film and you go, it's very clear this is going to be the worst film of the season. Yeah. I don't know where this is going to sit. Same. And Same. So, I think you have a very, yeah, we always did, with, like in most seasons, we're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's going to be near the last. Yep. This one is... Yeah, it's impressive. Yeah, it's an impressive it really movie. is, isn't it? So, I'm throwing it out there. It's going to be my number one film this week. <laughs> That's going to be my bottom of my list. <laughs> uh, Just because people one. say we agree too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I've got it at number one. Craig's got it at number one. <laughs> um, but, Craig, where can people find us? You can go on to Twitter. Or you can go on to Instagram at FFTL Podcast. Or um, come find us on Facebook from first to last podcast. We go on there, do some commenting, you know, just, just look at the content we put up. Yeah. Um, email us at info at FFTLpodcast.com or come on to our website, www.fftlpodcast.com. Love it. Or as always, we ask, please, if you like what you're hearing, share us with someone. Share us. Give us five stars. Interact. Interact with us. But give us a review, some five stars. Yeah, give us a review. It's actually, what that does is, we say it all the time, but what that does, it actually helps in the terms of people finding us, makes it easier for people to find us. Yeah, so the more reviews we have, the more people can find us, the more people can listen, the more, the more content we, get, we can The more people out. we can bring on who yeah, will be famous exactly right. and stuff like that. Not just John O'Rourke. That's right. Or John <laughs> Killian. Yeah, Who's John that Killian. guy? Who's that guy? Who's that guy? It's Craig's Park, brother. Parkview Hotel. <laughs> Non-sponsors. Non-sponsors. You can be an official sponsor, John. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can do it. Yeah, you can do it. Yeah, Just yeah. shout me a delicious steak dinner. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm glad you went there about getting some more guests, Craig. Yeah, exactly. Because next week we've actually got a special guest. Yay! I'm really excited. We have an author, journalist, film critic. Her name's Maria Lewis. She's an absolute legend. We're getting fancy. I know. And she's going to be on talking near dark yo yeah i'm so excited i've not seen near dark cool it's such an unknown quantity but i have seen that cover with bill paxton beat to poopy oh yeah and bill i'm Paxton's looking forward to it gonna be awesome i did get a very special blu-ray copy of it oh did you yeah i tracked down a german company just like arrow who did the loveless and they did a limited run of like 2000 it's got this sick drawn hand um, Lance Henriksen on the front 
So I'm very, very looking forward to it. I said to Kathleen tonight, I think I'm going to make more of an effort to watch a lot of the special features as well. Yeah. Because some of these releases, especially for Bigelow's work, when you think Ron Howard, they're major film releases. So they do the standard sort of... Well, uh, they've uh, also released like Entertainment Tonight stuff. Yeah, prom- that's exactly it's right. It's promo stuff, not actual um, special features. But I think the Catherine Bigelow stuff, because she is an auteur, People want to just gobble up as much information about it as possible. So I'm really looking forward to just trying to consume more content around the film. So I'll be doing that for Near Dark next week. Tune in next week. We do have Near Dark. I'm really excited for it. I'm excited. I'm excited for the rest of the season. It's going to be a good season, guys. It sure is. It's not going to be a 28-episode season. <laughs> it's good for all of us. Yeah, it is. That's good it's for good all for us. all of us. At this stage of the Ron Howard season, with this many films to go, I was probably planning the next season, so it's <laughs> nice to not be worried about that at the moment. Um, so tune in next week. We can't wait. So from all of us here at From First to Last podcast, I'm Jeff Reed. I'm Craig Gilliam, and we'll catch you next week. See you guys. <laughs>